now in session, the Honorable Patricia A. Riley of Jasper County presiding, <coughs> with the Honorable Dana J. Henworthy of Grant County, and the Honorable Randall T. Shepherd of Vandenberg County. You may be seated. Hello, gentlemen. What a fine array of lawyers. <laughs> Okay, today I'm going to first suggest, 20 minutes aside, did you find yourself confined to your arguments a bit by 20 minutes? Because we had discussed that we can go 30 aside, if you wish. Do, do you, Matt? We'll, okay, so we'll tell the timekeeper to use 30, and if you want to sit down sooner, no penalties, okay? All right. So who are we, who's arguing today for appellant? Peter Rusthoven, your Mr. Rusthoven, good. And are you going to be saying things today? And what's your name? Uh, Kai yes, <laughs> I guess that's, that's why you're arguing, huh? Kai will not be addressing anything to the court. He may be whispering to me in that voice. <laughs> in that voice. <laughs> very good, very good. All right, and thank you for the appellee. Uh, Stuart Parcel, your all right, and Mr. Smith, are you going to be joining oh, yeah. in? Okay, just nudging him, huh? Okay. All right, thank you. Let's begin. Thank you, Judge Riley. May it please the court. Uh, if I may, I would just like to thank the court and opposing counsel at the outset for agreeing to reset the argument. Uh, courtesy is much appreciated. Um, there's enough going on in this case that I think, with the court's permission, spend just a few minutes to reset the background. Who are the parties and other entities? On one side, we have Hakeem Elzine, who is uh, in the vehicle service contract industry. Mm -hmm. Mr. Elzine is also the whole owner of two other companies. One is Dimension, and the other is called Dealer VSC, which I'll call Dealer. Dealer VSC was formed by Mr. Elzine for purposes of this Allegiant venture. The other side is Tricor Automotive. Tricor formed Allegiance as an LLC with dealer. Okay, I want to make sure I get all this too. Is um, So, I call him E. Does he, he has uh, interest in dementia, dimension and dealer. And yes, then, he owns both of them entirely. Right, he owns both of those. And then how do you describe his ownership if uh, to Allegiance. Uh, in Allegiance, dealer, which he formed for purpose of this transaction, the ownership has changed. Right. All right. The first, which gets us to the first set of documents, which are uh, entered in April of 2018. Okay. There's a formation and operating agreement. This is dealer, Tricor, and Allegiance form this, sets up the joint venture. Dealer owns 51%, Tricor owns 49%, dealer has a board majority. And this is set up as 100 units, so the numbers, percentages match the units. There's an employment agreement that's between Elzine and Dealer, under which uh, Elzine becomes the CEO mm -hmm. of the uh, Allegiance Joint Venture. And then, pretty important to this case, there's a goodwill agreement. Elzine has considerable background in the vehicle service contract industry. So Tricor paid $7 million to Elzine for his personal goodwill, and the way that was handled was uh, Tricor made a separate $7 million capital contribution to Allegiance, and Allegiance immediately turned that over to Elzine 
so that his personal goodwill was acquired by allegiance. Now, is that part of the goodwill agreement? Yes, it's part That's of the goodwill That is agreement. in the goodwill agreement. Okay. Okay. Then, another provision of the goodwill agreement is that if uh, the joint venture doesn't meet a certain earnings target, initially that was by June of 2019, then uh, Elzine will return up to $2 million to Tricor. And again, the way the return is handled, Elzine pays $2 million to Allegiant, and under the agreement, Allegiant must immediately transmit that to Tricor. Obviously, the setup of this has something to do with tax considerations, but in the substance, Allegiance is, uh, Tricor is supplying $7 million for his personal goodwill in forming the venture, and, and he has to return $2 million if they don't meet a certain earnings target. Now we go to March 2019, which is where the second set of these interrelated agreements are entered. Basically, at this point, Elzine wants dealer, his wholly owned, to have more money. So we do the following. They enter a memorandum of understanding, and although it's called an MOU, it's in fact a binding contract, and that's clear on the face of it. Tell me why you said that. Hmm? Uh, why is it a binding contract then? Because it says so. I mean, they all sign oh, okay. it. It says it's a binding contract. It just is titled Memorandum of Understanding. Perfect. Okay. okay. Uh, no one disputes that that's a binding contract, by the way. Okay. All right. The, the Memorandum of Understanding is among Elzine, Dealer, and Tricor. Here's the things that happen. Tricor buys six dealer allegiance units for a little over $2 million. At that point, Tricor now owns 55 of the 100 units, dealer, uh, dealer owns 45, and Tricor now has a board majority. Second. And this is where we have our dispute. We're coming up to that. It's, okay. re it's related to this. It's in the memorandum. <laughs> the yes. whole thing. Okay. <laughs> no, it's hard to follow, but, we'll, we'll but it, it boils down, as I think we'll see, to something fairly simple. Okay. Tricor makes up to $7.6 million available to dealer, and this $7.6 million is based on a formula. It is half of dealer's share of Allegiance's value. So you take 45% of Allegiance's value, multiply that by 50%, and you end up with $7.6 million as the credit line limit. There are some conditions to that. We will get to those in a minute because those are pretty central to the case. Another provision of the Memorandum of Understanding is that this credit limit is going to be reset. The first reset is going to be March 31 of 2020, and it's going to be based on applying that same formula to the then value of the, of the, of the enterprise. So that if the value of the enterprise goes down, then the credit limit is going to go down, and that is critical. And what, who's to determine the value at that, on that date? The value, I, the, the formula for determining the value, I can't remember precisely, but I know this. It's not disputed that it was a reset. And it's in the document. It's in the documents. Okay. Yeah. Then there are two other agreements. These are uh, a unit pledge agreement, that's between dealer and Tricor, and a convertible note, a note, a promissory note from deal, dealer to Tricor. And basically, what these provide is if, if they're in default under the Memorandum of Understanding, then a certain number of dealers' ownership units in Allegiance will automatically convert into Tricor ownership uh, units in Allegiance. So it's Does going it to say that. Does it say automatically? Yes. Okay. Uh, if you look at uh, and I, if you look at the convertible note, it says. Give me just a moment. Notwithstanding anything to the contrary, in it. 
MOU amounts in default under this note pursuant to the MOU behind any applicable grace notice or cure period will convert automatically. What paragraph or designation? I, I will give you the, I will give, I will supply that to the court. I apologize. Okay. But that is the first page of the convertible note. Automatically convert based on the value, you know, the default and how it applies to the value. Now, what do we end up with here? Excuse me one moment. I have put too many papers over here. We now end up with a situation where I apologize very much to the court. Somehow I've managed, I'm glad you gave me extra minutes because I managed to bury my outline under this. Thank you. So now we get into what is default under the MOU, and these provisions are right on the face of the memorandum. Paragraph three, any outstanding amount in excess of the reset limit shall be paid within 30 days following notice thereof. Paragraph five, default includes failure to pay any timely interest due and failure to timely pay any amount due as a result of the principal reduction due to application of the reset credit limits. It also includes uh, operational defaults by Ozion and dealer. That's kind of a tail here, um, uh, which we'll talk about briefly at the end. But that's the key. Failure to pay any amount due as a result of principal deduction due to application of the reset limits. But it, does it say that it will go into uh, different pledges at, as a default? If it's a default, what happens under the convertible note and the unit pledge agreement is there's an automatic conversion. Automatic conversion. You take the amount of default. But where does it say that? Or how do, how I just do, read that to your honor. Where that's in three and five. No, in three and five, uh, three and five, I'm just giving the events of default. All right. I'm just talking about what the events of default are. All right. I, three again says if, you, if there's an, uh, if there's an uh, amount that is in excess of the reset limit, that has to be paid within 30 days. So if the amount of the loan is higher than what the reset credit limit is, you've got to pay it down within 30 days. Right, but I'm worried about the conversion language. Why, why would it automatically, if you're in default, go into the uh, All of the agreements relate to each other and under, under the conditional note, if there's a default under the MOU, the Memorandum of Understanding, it automatically converts. There's really no issue in this case about that it automatically converts. The only question is whether they were in default. Okay. So now we get to what are the two restrictions? I said there were, there were conditions on this credit limit. There were two things going on. One, for reasons we don't have to get into, either Elzine or his wholly owned entity Dimension owed money to uh, owed money to Allegiance based on dealings involving Elzine as CEO and Allegiance assets and uses them for dimension. We don't have to get into all that background. The point is simply this. He owed about 1.2 million. That is, 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 is covered in the Memorandum of Understanding. It says we're going to reduce the credit limit by the 1.2 million that not owed the dealer, that Elzine owes to Allegiance. So it's nothing that's going to go, nothing that's owed to dealer, but we're going to reduce dealer's credit limit by the amount that Elzine owns. And it says 
that 1.2 million, since it's already owed, will be treated as an initial draw on the line of credit. So the 7.6 million line of credit is reduced automatically by 1.2. It's restricted by 1.2 that, that Elzine owes, and that's treated as an initial draw. What's the second thing that's a condition? There's this contingent goodwill adjustment. We don't know if it's going to happen. We don't know what amount it's going to be. And what this says is the $2 million, unless that is resolved by August 30, 2019, unless we have resolved what the goodwill adjustment is by then, doesn't mean anybody wins or not, unless we've resolved it, $2 million uh, is a restriction on the line of credit. Much of the argument has been about whether that should be treated when the goodwill adjustment isn't, isn't resolved by that date, whether it should be treated as a draw, which is what Tricor has always believed, or, as, you know, or not. There's a big argument about it shouldn't be a draw because the other one says it's a draw immediately. This one's a contingent liability. It doesn't say it'll be a draw immediately. It doesn't say it'll be a draw in express terms. But what are the key points? It's still a restriction. It still restricts the line of credit, whether it's the initial line of credit or the amount that it's later reset to is still restricted by that $2 million goodwill adjustment. Now, as I mentioned, neither of these limits, and when I mention this because a lot of argument has been made by the other side, well, none of this money was owed to dealer or owed by dealer. None of it was money coming to dealer. Neither of these limits involves anything that was loaned to dealer. They, they all, and both of them involve amounts either owed then, the $1.2 million, or contingently might be owed, the $2 million goodwill adjustment, by Elzine, or perhaps his wholly owned entity, Dimension, to Allegiance or to Tricor via Allegiance. So the notion that these limits don't count and can't be treated as draws simply because they're not owed to dealer, the, the agreement on its face refutes that. Both of them involve reducing the credit limit to dealer based on things Elzine owes somewhere else. So, Wait, slow down. <laughs> I, I shall. Thank you, Your Honor, since you've given me more time specifically. <laughs> Say that last part again about it's, it's just on the face of the agreement. The face of the agreement shows that the credit line is restricted based on debts owed by Elzine. Right. Not debts owed by dealer. Dealer has argued throughout, we'll get into that a little bit more. Dealer has argued, well, it can't be, this goodwill adjustment can't be a draw because it, it wasn't anything loaned to dealer. But the, that mis ignores the face of the agreement. The agreement cuts, cuts dealer's credit limit based on Elzine's debts. And this is because all these parties are viewing together basically in one transaction. Now, what happens factually, this is pretty simple. Dealer rapidly borrows the credit limit max. 7.6 million minus 2 million, that's the goodwill adjustment, which is a restriction, equals 5.6. You have the 1.2 mil restriction treated as an initial draw, so dealer, uh, <coughs> dealer borrows an additional 4.4 million. Everybody agrees credit limit is maxed out, maxed out. Everybody agrees the goodwill adjustment is not resolved by August 2019, and it's still not resolved. Tricor says dealer owes 2 million for the goodwill adjustment. Dealer disagrees, doesn't pay. Tricor declares default. The credit limit, this is critical, the credit limit is reset on March 31, 2020, from 7.6 million 
because the value of the business has gone down, to $3.362 million. Dealer at that point pays $2.24 million, which it claims reduces its debt from $5.6 million to $3.36 million, which it claims, and we're going to discuss this, is below the reset. Tricor claims it's nearly $2 million above the credit limit. This triggers the automatic default. When you apply the automatic default, Tricor ends up buying 36 of their units at this, at this formulaic price. We now own 91, and they own 9. Then there's another provision uh, in the operating agreement. I know it's complicated, but another agreement where we can basically say, we're going to buy the rest unless you buy all of ours. It's called shotgun clause. And Tricor, under that provision, acquires all. So at this point, Tricor owns, if they're in default, Tricor owns the whole thing. Now, there are a number of contract law principles that have been discussed. I would like to start with one that I think really illuminates and got crystallized during the briefing stage. We argued that their interpretation renders this goodwill adjustment meaningless. That their argument is, if the goodwill agreement doesn't get resolved, nothing happens. It doesn't become a draw, and it, you know, therefore, nothing happens. He can still borrow it. He can still go forward. They say, what did they say? And this is at pages 43 and 44 of their brief, and this is critical. They say, that's not true. It's not meaningless because, starting at the bottom, page 43, under the plain terms of the MOU, the maximum amount that could be drawn on the MOU loan remains, quote, restricted by, close quote, $2 million until the goodwill adjustment is resolved. So what does that mean? Let's walk through the math. And you can find this same math uh, in a letter that was sent to them showing that they were $2 million over the credit limit. It found it at our appendix, volume 3, pages 179 to 80. What's the reset credit limit? 3.362 million. What's the dealer debt before the reset? No dispute, 5.6 million. What's the dealer payment? 2.24 million. So dealer's remaining debt is 3.36 million, to, you know, just 2,000 below the credit. They say, we've now set it below the credit limit. This is not so, because what's disappeared in this? The goodwill adjustments have disappeared in this, in this argument. It's, they say it's not a loan. They say it's not a, a draw. Okay, but then they just told you it's still a restriction. They've told you it's still a restriction. It remains a restriction, which of course is true on the face of the agreement. So what does that mean? What, are they, what do they owe? What are they allowed to borrow? They're allowed to borrow the reset credit limit, 3.362 million, minus the $2 million goodwill uh, adjustment figure, which remains a restriction. So the actual amount they are allowed to borrow is $1.362 million, and they're over that by nearly $2 million. Specifically, they're over by $1.998 million. So wait, what we have so, here... Wait, so, wait. Mm -hmm. No, so it's all right. That $1.99 or the $2 million, that is this was outlined in the uh, adjustment, the goodwill adjustment, because there's a goodwill clause. The good, you have a goodwill adjustment of $2 million. All right. What happens to that when the credit limit is reset? Okay? And they haven't resolved it. We say, look, the party's intentions, if you look at all these agreements, 
is that if Alzheimer doesn't pay this, it becomes a draw on the line of credit. They say, oh, it doesn't say specifically becomes a draw, therefore it doesn't become a draw. We say, you've rendered it meaningless. The key point is, if it's not a draw, what is it? Right, what is it? What do you say? It is a restriction, as they say, it remains a restriction on the line of credit. So when a credit limit is reduced to 3.36 million, they pay down enough so that they own 3.36 million, but they didn't subtract the goodwill adjustment. The goodwill adjustment remains a restriction. So when the credit limit is reset to 3.36, the actual credit limit is minus 2 million from that, 1.362 million. They're, they're nearly 2 million in default. Either way you look at it, mostly this is a battle about now terminology, not substance. We think and avoid saying it's a draw. He has to pay it. They say, no, it's not. Okay. Uh, they insist no. But they also insist the provision in it mean, mean, isn't meaningless because it remains a restriction. But they ignore the restriction. It is undisputed in these facts that they're $2 million over it if it's treated as restriction. We say it's a draw. They say restriction. Fine. Then you're $2 million over. It all comes out. It has to be something. Now, whatever characterization one, one preserves, draw or remaining restriction on the credit limit, they owe $2 million that haven't been paid. Full stop. In this case, it also renders moot all these arguments about operational defaults and, and whether you know, we had a right to change the operating agreement. Other deal agreements about this country, we think, underscore that this can't be right. If you look at all, one, as I've mentioned, they insist, it's a theme of their brief, that dealer didn't get the $2 million, but as we've shown, the, the line of credit restrictions are based on things that Elzine owes. Uh, Elzine, a dealer also didn't get the $1.2 million that was immediately a restriction and immediately treated as a draw. They say, and I think they're going to say this again, that Tricor is not a third-party beneficiary of the goodwill agreement. Respectfully, this is wrong in the law and irrelevant. Why is it wrong in the law? Tricor is specifically named in the goodwill agreement. Specifically named in the goodwill agreement. And the parties expressly assume a duty to Tricor in the goodwill agreement. It says, when you pay this back, when Elzine pays allegiance to $2 million, allegiance then immediately has to pay that to, to Tricor. Now, the test, whether you're talking Indiana law or Ohio law, if you're named in the agreement and the parties assume a direct obligation to you, you're a third-party beneficiary. Why is that irrelevant? It's, it's irrelevant as an argument for this reason. We're forcing the MOU. Tricor is unquestionably a party to the MOU. Dealer is a party to the MOU. Yeah. Its obligation is affected by the goodwill adjustment. We're enforcing the MOU. So even if arguably Tricor was not a third-party beneficiary, that doesn't mean that we can't enforce the MOU according to its terms. So the whole third-party beneficiary thing, again, it's wrong. We obviously are under any test named. They assume a direct obligation. But we're enforcing a party to which, an agreement to which dealer is a party. Okay, and we're so a party. Wait, you say $2 million is a restriction still. Correct. Okay, so if it's not a draw, it's a restriction. It's one of the two. All right. So how then... Uh, do they use the, res what is a restriction? What is that restriction, restriction for? Restriction means, if I establish a line of credit for you of $100, mm -hmm. and it's restricted by something else, that's restricted by 20, you can borrow 80. 
And if you borrow, if you try, if you borrow 90 and don't pay it back, you're over the credit limit. Mm -hmm. That's what the restriction means. Mm -hmm. So they have two million still. You're saying in the pot? If, if, <laughs> if it wasn't treated as a draw, uh -huh. then it automatically. They argue. It's we say that's making it meaningless. They say no, it's not meaningless. It's still a restriction. And to which response is, well, take it off then. If it's a restriction, then you're not below the credit limit. You're two million above it. Again, the reset credit limit is 3.3. They say it, the two million remains a restriction. What does that mean? You can't, you can't borrow. There's two million of that 3.36. You can't borrow. So they're two million over. Now, the other thing they argue is that contract. For some reason, they're insisting that this court should decide this by looking at one paragraph of one agreement and not a look at all the contracts involved here together, which all involve the parties and the same venture. One, they're setting up the, the joint venture agreement. Second set of documents, they're restructuring it. Obviously, those should be read together. I don't know why they're insisting otherwise, and the only reason they could be insisting otherwise is to just look at this one paragraph, is that they know that if you look at them together, it shows that the intent of the party was, if Elzine didn't pay, then it became a draw on the agreement. But even if it's not a draw, okay, then it's a restriction. That's what you tell us. Then you're over the credit limit that way. Now, they also make a big deal about expressio unius, you know, the, the provision about the 1.2 million, which is a current debt, is immediately treated as a draw. The provision about the 2.0 goodwill adjustment, which is not then a debt, which may never happen, it just restricts the amount you can borrow, but it may never happen. It doesn't say we'll then be treated as a draw. Okay. What's the, what's the law on this negative implication? And we gave it to the court. You have to be talking about exactly the same things before that canon comes into play. That's in the, the, both this court's decisions, uh, the Supreme Court, and Scalia and Garner uh, on reading law. And they point out, Scalia and Garner point out in that treatise, you know, you've got to be really careful about applying this. You've got to make sure they're exactly the same thing. But again, if so, all right, you say it's not a draw, it still restricts your loan, you're still above it. Um, operational defaults and our amendment, if we own it all, all those issues disappear. All those issues disappear. The operational defaults, okay, they're in default under the agreement. We can talk about them later if it comes up in, in my friend's argument. Amendments to the operating agreement, obviously if we end up owing 91 and then 100%, we can do whatever we want with the operating agreement. It hinges on the default. Thank you, Your Thank you, Mr. Sullivan. You see that? Got one in front of me. It's the same thing. Thank you, Mr. Parcell. Uh, uh, thank you, Your Honor, and uh, uh, may it please the court, um, Stuart Parcell representing Applebee's, dealer VSC Limited, and Haytham L. Zane, the defendants and counterclaimants uh, in this case. Also with me are uh, Doug Church, Alex Pinagar, Mr. Smith uh, from the Church Law Firm in Noblesville, Indiana. Uh, Your Honor, the Hamilton uh, circuit courts grant a summary judgment in favor of Appley's dealer VSC and Mr. L. Zane should be um, affirmed. Uh, 
Um, Appley's, uh, or, uh, sorry, appellant's briefs on appeal have only challenged the uh, trial court's grant of summary judgment in favor of my clients and none of the other rulings. So those, all of those other rulings uh, must be uh, affirmed. Um, and my colleague today saw, argues solely about the grant of summary judgment on these um, issues under the MOU promissory note pledge agreement, as well as the conversion of my client's ownership units in allegiance. Uh, Your Honors, the trial court properly granted summary judgment for my clients um, for breach of the MOU promissory note unit pledge agreement and the, the conversion of its units. This is a straightforward contract case based upon the plain language of the party's contracts. We have sophisticated parties, both sides lawyered up, fully negotiated, um, carefully chose not only who the contracting parties were to each of these agreements, but also the contract language that is expressly set forth in the written contracts. To overcome summary judgment, and this is important, Tricor must contradict the plain terms of the contracts in three ways. I'm going to summarize them first. <coughs> Number one, who is the promissor or obligor under the goodwill agreement? That is, if there is a goodwill adjustment, who owed it? Number two, who is the promisee or obligee under the goodwill agreement? In other words, who was entitled to receive that goodwill adjustment? from Mr. L. Zane. And number three, the plain terms of the contract. There is no contract language in the MOU, the Memorandum of Understanding, promissory note, or any other agreement stating that if the goodwill adjustment is owed by Mr. L. Zane under the goodwill agreement, but not paid by him, there's no contract language anywhere saying it will be treated as a draw by dealer under the MOU. Dealer is the sole obligor under the promissory note. All right, so um, the trial court ruled correctly on all three of those issues, and, and this is an important point. The trial court's summary judgment must be affirmed if the trial court was right on any one of those three contract issues. Here the but our standard is de novo, correct? Yes, Your Honor. Um, yes, but the law is also that it's their burden to show that the trial judge here, Judge Felix, um, got it wrong. And if there's any theory that supports the court's summary judgment ruling, it must be affirmed. And here the trial court got every single one of those three contract issues right. So what are you saying were his findings? What did, what did he find that we have to affirm? The, 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 so he, the Judge Felix found that uh, a Tricor had materially breached the MOU, right. promissory note, and unit pledge agreement by taking huh? uh, Mr. L. Zane's alleged $2 million owed under his goodwill agreement that he had with Allegiance and once Tricor claimed that was owed, Mr. L. Zane disputed it. Um, Tricor then went ahead and said, okay, fine, we're going to 
pretend that Dealer borrowed those two, that $2 million under the MOU, in which they then used, because Dealer secured the MOU with its units and allegiance. So what do you think about Mr. Tricor or the, Mr. Resthoven's uh, uh, representation of uh, the, his math? What do you think about his math? Okay, Your, Your Honor, and I'm, I'm, and I'm, glad, I'm glad you asked. The, um, the very first time that we heard that argument, that it remains this, this $2 million on the MOU remains a restriction even after the March 31, 2020 reset limit, the very first time we heard that was in their reply brief in this appeal. And I'll, I'll, I'll show you, Your Honors, if I may, mm -hmm. I'll show you, Your Honors, why um, that is wrong. As a matter of the plain terms of the MOU contract. Um, <coughs> Your Honor, should have been provided uh, this chart in advance of this hearing, which you've also provided to counsel. This is section two of the, of the MOU. The only place in the MOU that refers in anywhere in the MOU to the goodwill adjustment is right here. It says what? The initial loan facility amount will be restricted. The initial, the word initial, Your Honors, is dispositive of that argument. In section three. Let, let's slow down. So the initial loan facility, what was the initial? So the initial loan facility was right here. It was 7.65 million. But that was on. Uh, but then it says it was this, restricted. Is this the adjustment? No, no, Your Honor. This is the initial amount of the loan facility that was available. Okay. And it says the initial amount, that 7.65 million, is restricted by the amount of the 2 million goodwill adjustment. In other words, initially, uh, dealer, the sole obligor under the note, could only borrow up to 5.65 million. It, it borrowed the 5.6 million and stopped. It knew it, it was at its max, okay? Section three, the next section of the MOU, right after this section two, provides for the reset limit that my colleague was talking about. It says beginning March 31 of 2020, so a year later, the MOU is dated March 28 of 2019. A year later, this reset limit comes into play and it's based upon allegiances, earnings, as of year end 2019. And they say after March 31 of 2020, there's a new limit. So you're no longer dealing with the initial limit, you're dealing with a new reset limit. Right. And the math that my colleague went through, the $3.36 million limit, which I agree with my colleague, restricted means you can't borrow it. It's a limit on the amount that you uh, can borrow. Tricor, March 31 of 2020, invoked a reset limit of 3.36 million. That is not the initial limit on the loan facility. The initial limit lasted for a year, okay? Mm -hmm. After Tricor imposed the reset limit, that was the new. The, the $2 million restricting on its face only says, only applies to the initial loan facility amount. In black and white, it's what the parties expressly agreed to in section two of the MOU. Um, 
So the three contract issues, Your Honor, the, um, here the, the, this is undisputed. Under the goodwill agreement, and this was April 2018, Mr. L. Zane is the sole party. He's the sole obligor under that, under that agreement. Um, dealer, the, his company, is not a party to the goodwill agreement. It defines who the parties are in the preamble. All right, the two parties are Mr. Elzane and Allegiance. Allegiance bought Mr. Elzane's personal goodwill is what happened in the business. He's been in this industry for three decades. Dealer's not a party. Dealer never assented to pay um, any obligation of Mr. Elzane under the goodwill agreement. Uh, dealer never guaranteed. There's no guarantee in this case. Uh, Tricor cites a lot of guarantee, personal guarantee cases in its briefs. Here, there, it's undisputed. There is no guarantee. Dealer did not guarantee any obligation of Mr. Elzane under the goodwill agreement. And, and fourthly, on who is the, the promisor under the goodwill agreement, um, it's Elzane, and Dealer never pledged any of its ownership units in allegiance um, to secure any obligation of the good, goodwill agreement, okay? Dealer is just not a party at all under that agreement. So that's, that's dispositive issue number one. Tricor can't claim that dealer is responsible for Mr. Elzane's goodwill adjustment. Whether it was two million or nothing, that's something that the trial court held we don't need to decide um, because irrespective of that, Tricor breached by taking the alleged $2 million goodwill adjustment and moving it over to a different contract with a different debtor without any language permitting it to, okay? So let me move on to this positive contract issue number two. Be before we move on, isn't Memorandum of Understanding Section 2 assigning $1.2 of Mr. L. Zane's responsibility to dealer? Uh, yes, Your Honor, and, and I'm glad you asked that. There, there are two critical differences between the $1.2 million, which is completely separate from the $2 million goodwill adjustment. Number one, Tricor actually advanced the $1.2 million under the MOU. Okay, it's right there in the agreement in Section 2. It expressly says it will be paid um, on their behalf because it was owed at the time to allegiance. So, okay, so item 1B concerning the $1.2 million, it's undisputed. Those funds were advanced by Tricor under the MOU credit, line of credit. The $2 million, it's undisputed, was never advanced. They're trying to collect funds that they never advanced under the loan. Um, and that's undisputed. We have testimony admissions from Tricor's own chief financial officer to that effect. But number uh, two, uh, Judge Kenworthy, to answer your question, the, the second important distinction with that $1.2 million is that dealer expressly agreed that it would repay the $1.2 million right there in the last sentence of section two. It states, that that release of funds by Tricor under this loan facility will be treated as a draw on the loan facility, i.e., 
dealer expressly assented in the contract that it would repay the $1.2 million. There is no such language with respect to the $2 million goodwill adjustment that Tricor never advanced under the MOU. Those two um, dispositive uh, issues on that that are um, undisputed. Um, so let me get to the third dispositive contract issue, and that is the plain language, the plain language of the agreement. Um, right, and it's coming to Section 2 of the MOU. One thing I will say, we don't think that the goodwill agreement is part of the same transaction as the, the MOU, promissory note, and uh, pledge agreement. Those three are but the goodwill agreement was a year before, different parties, different transaction. But here's the important point. Even if, even if you did construe them together, there's not a single word in any of the contracts that supports their position. They have never identified it in their briefs and they didn't identify any contract language um, today during, during this hearing. But I'd like to point to- but The MOU is part of the, is a contract. It's part of Yes, the, Your Honor. Uh, that is not disputed. Okay. Yes. So the contract language on its face, um, it, the MOU nowhere, and this is, this is what the trial court found or concluded, and, and, and the judge was right. The MOU nowhere states that if that goodwill adjustment amount is, is not or is resolved, either way, it nowhere states that the goodwill adjustment will be treated as a draw. Um, by dealer under the MOU loan credit. It nowhere states that. Um, the only word that's used with respect to the goodwill uh, ad adjustment in the MOU is what we looked at earlier. It is restricted by the initial loan amount, that 7.65 is restricted by that 2 million, which meant that dealer could only borrow up to the 5.65 million um, with respect to that initial loan amount. Um, the trial court expressly determined and did so correctly that that can only mean exactly what it says. Tricor would not lend that two million and dealer could not borrow that $2 million of that initial amount of the credit line until the goodwill adjustment was uh, resolved. So you're asking us to look at all the documents in, in, in this interpretation? Uh, yeah, Your Honor, our, our position is that from a plain reading of the MOU and the note and the unit pledge agreement, we win as a matter of law and Judge Felix got it right. Our argument is also that even if you did construe somehow the goodwill agreement as part of those three later, one year later contracts, um, that they, we still prevail. There's not any provision in any of the contracts anywhere that supports what Tricor did, which is to take um, the alleged $2 million goodwill adjustment and pretend that dealer had borrowed it under the uh, MOU credit line, which never happened. It is undisputed Tricor never advanced a dime of those funds under the, under the MOU. Um, the, the trial court correctly held that the words restricted by on, on their plain meaning do not mean treated as a draw. 
Okay? They're two entirely different things. And my colleague today expressly admitted that, that restricted by simply means it's a, it's a maximum. It's a cap on the amount that you can borrow. You can't, just can't borrow it. It doesn't mean you treat it as a draw. They're two entirely different things. Um, the uh, trial court also correctly ruled that you, you cannot rewrite these contracts, the parties carefully chose their language. Tricor is asking that you add the words to the goodwill adjustment, treat it as a draw, um, like you see for the $1.2 million. But it's not there for the goodwill adjustment. And so the uh, Indiana Supreme Court expressly held in the Care Group Heart Hospital case, you, 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 we cannot add tacit terms or implied terms into the parties express agreed upon contracts. So I haven't read all the documents yet, uh, but so where does it say it can be used to as a pledge that if, if you know in, in any of the documents that that's how it's treated as a pledge? Yes, uh, Your Honor. Um, so the MOU, so dealer did pledge its units under the MOU. But because the $2 million was never Pardon. borrowed under the MOU, okay. those, it doesn't apply. Gotcha. It shouldn't have been part of the MOU loan balance in the first place, ever. Okay. Um, and I do want to address the, uh, the argument my colleague, colleague made. He pointed to the, uh, the note, and you asked about, Your Honor asked about the automatic con conversion language. Um, in the note, it doesn't say everything is automatically converted. It actually expressly states, um, and this is the third paragraph on the first page of the promissory note. Amounts in default under this note pursuant to sections 5A or 5B of the MOU, okay? There's 5C, D, and E too, um, and those are not automatically converted, and that includes the operational defaults under Section 5C, the alleged operational defaults. So I want to be clear. Only 5A is payment of interest. It's undisputed. All interest payments were made. They were up to date regardless of uh, what they characterize it as. All interest payments were up to date, undisputed. Section 5B is payment the difference above the reset limit. So in March 31, 2020, when Tricor established the $3.36 million reset limit, which was no longer the initial loan facility amount. 3.36. It is undisputed that my client, dealer, paid $2.24 million to bring that amount under the new reset limit. Undisputed. Undisputed. The only way Tricor claimed that it was still deficient was to say, well, no, we added the $2 million goodwill adjustment to that loan balance, which they never should have done. And that's why they declared a payment default on May 5 of 2020. Um, another important um, undisputed fact with respect to the so-called automatic conversion, um, that's not um, May 5 of 2020, and this is in Tricor's own letter, they exercised the option to accelerate the entire remaining balance of the MOU, okay? That's not automatic. That's not automatic in under the documents. In fact, the note provides on page two, it doesn't have paragraph numbers, but in the middle paragraph, 
it expressly states that upon a default, and here there was none, because the two million should not have been part of the MOU loan balance. But if there is a default, and it's at the option of the lender, all amounts under this note shall become immediately due and payable. That's acceleration. In Tricor's letter, top of page two of their May 5, 2020 letter, they accelerated. They declared a default, a payment default, because of the two million that was not part of the MOU anyway. And then they accelerated the entire balance and wiped out 36 of dealers' 45 unit ownership units in Allegiance. So when they're arguing, oh, it was just automatic, it occurred whenever it would have occurred, regardless of us, the fact that we sent you that May 5 letter, it is simply not true. The undisputed fact is they declared a payment default, they exercised their supposed acceleration option, and more importantly, and this is, this is important with respect to the so-called you weren't prejudiced argument, under Section 5, I believe it's five, yeah, last sentence of section five of the MOU, their declaration of a payment default resulted in Mr. Elzane's immediate resignation as the CEO of Allegiance, precluding him from ever curing any alleged operational defaults that they're claiming. Um, Question asked to the computation of earnings. We talk about earnings computation as it relates to the goodwill adjustment, and we also talk about the earnings computation as it relates to the, the reset limit. Yes, Your Honor. Are we talking about two different computations or yes, the Your same Honor. computation that's not been determined? The, the um, a mixture of both. Okay. So the, um, the first, um, the goodwill adjustment was based upon a calculation of Allegiance's EBITDA, for the tw trailing 12 months as of June 30 of 2019. Um, and so that amount has not been resolved, is still in, still in dispute, and the, the trial court correctly ruled that regardless of that issue, even assuming a $2 million was owed by Mr. Elzane under the goodwill agreement for purposes of summary judgment, that Tricor had no contract right to claim that dealer had borrowed it under the MOU, because that never happened. The second reset limit was as of year end of 2019. It was a new EBITDA calculation that, that Tricor performed, and that they then imposed a new reset limit under the MOU as of March 31 of 2020. So the reset computation does not rely upon the goodwill adjustment computation? Correct, Your Honor. Okay. Correct. Thank you. Um, it is um, so that so for all those those reasons, the trial court correctly concluded that Tricor had materially breached the MOU agreements, the MOU promissory note unit pledge agreement, by adding that two million dollar goodwill adjustment and, and claiming that dealer had borrowed it under the MOU line of credit when it, that never happened. Um, that is also undisputed, okay, building off of that breach, that if Tricor had not so breached the MOU, there was no payment deficiency as of May 5 of 2020, and no payment default under the MOU or promissory note. That's undisputed. So all you do, 
you, you take out the $2 million that they claimed was part of that MOU loan balance, and it's undisputed that dealer had paid enough in to, to put it under the new reset limit that was set March 31 of 2020. That's that $3.36 million. They, the balance was beneath that, so there was no payment default. And the trial court then properly concluded that because there had been no default by dealer under the MOU agreements, that Tricor had no basis then to accelerate um, dealer's entire loan balance on May 5, 2020, as, and this is uh, admitted in their complaint as well, and also had no basis to convert dealer VSE's 36 units. Um, it, what Tricor did, it dropped dealer VSE's ownership and allegiance from 45% to 9%. And as we heard today, they then um, purported to take that last 9% away from them as well, and we're in federal court in Ohio over that, and that's not before your honors. And that's why they now claim they're the sole owner uh, of the company. The federal court has... Excuse me, is that the only uh, other case pending in Ohio? We have, there is an Ohio state court case. Uh -huh. So when Tricor was threatening to do what it actually did, mm -hmm. um, my clients sued Tricor and Allegiance um, in Ohio court. State court, okay. Yes, Your mm -hmm. Honor. A week later, Tricor brought this action here. Okay. And uh, we moved to dismiss this action. Right. Tricor argued no. The goodwill agreement is completely separate. Uh, don't enforce that Ohio forum selection clause there. Right. We should proceed here because this, this court has exclusive, is the exclusive venue, it said, for the MOU agreement. Right. So then when did the federal court get involved? The federal court got involved, Your Honor. Um, the one that I'm talking about is after they took out my client's remaining allegedly well, remaining nine pending. units. That is still pending, gotcha. and you. it has been stayed pending the completion of these proceedings. Okay. Uh, the federal court, uh, Tricor moved to dismiss that case. The federal court ruled that it did have uh, jurisdiction, and it, it was not a parallel action to the state court proceedings. Uh, I will uh, address just um, uh, briefly, um, I've covered all of the arguments, I believe, that Council made uh, here today. I will, since I have a little bit of time left, um, I will address just a couple of uh, additional issues that were raised in the briefs. The, the so-called alleged operational defaults. So this is under a different section. It would be Section 5C of the MOU. They were never pled um, by Tricor in its complaint. Um, the trial court ruled you can't now um, claim that there were operational defaults. He never pled it. Um, number two, Tricor, when they declared a default on May 5 of 2020, they said it was a default under Section 5B only, which is a so-called payment default, and that's because of the $2 million issue we just talked about. They never claimed an operational default when they declared default and a, a uh, accelerated the entire balance and converted my clients' um, uh, units. Number three Question on Question regarding the operational default. Yes, Your Honor. Didn't the trial court find when denying Tricor's motion for summary judgment that that remained a, a fact to be determined? Um, no, Your Honor. What actually the trial court um, determined was that um, 
the trial court expressly used even if. So it was an alternative holding. It said, um, Tricor didn't designate any evidence of operational defaults, okay? None, there's, there's not in the record. There's not, um, in fact, uh, Tricor's own CEO admitted um, that the things that they alleged in there were either mistaken or just plain wrong. And any other issues the trial court determined um, uh, were not even um, designated. There's no designated evidence supporting them. Uh, quote, Tricor presented no evidence that the other alleged operational defaults were required by the operational agreements, which was a precondition for an operational default under 5C of the MOU. The trial court then, to answer your honor's question, the trial court then said, even if I had ruled differently, Dealer and Mr. Elzane have presented evidence that there were no operational defaults. So even if Tricor had presented, had pled it, and had presented evidence, there were, um, uh, there still were facts showing that they didn't commit operational defaults. But the trial court was clear that uh, Tricor had not um, presented or designated any evidence to support those operational uh, defaults. You and have a follow-up? Yeah, I, I believe you're talking about the language in the trial court's order in paragraph 57, but I, I view the language in paragraph 88 differently. Um, that indicates that there's a genuine issue of material fact that remains to be determined, whether or not there were operational defaults committed or remaining. Yeah, Your Honor, but the, the, the court had ruled there's no, they didn't plead it and there's no evidence to support it. Um, it was just simply making the point my client had presented evidence that they did not. And the third argument on operational defaults is they breached the cure period. Um, the, the 60 days weren't up. They accelerated, they declared default, accelerated, and converted my client's units um, on May 5. That was day 57. Um, so for th those three reasons, they didn't plead it, didn't designate evidence, and they breached the, the uh, cure period that was required for the operational defaults. Thank you. That question led me to something I've been wondering about this case, which is, although I think you've just um, touched on it, um, this seems almost entirely a matter of interpreting the agreements and who did what and what, and there isn't any uh, uh, disputed matter of fact standing out there. Uh, it's, uh, nobody says no, he acted on the ninth and rather than on the fourth. Agreement about when he did it and whether that was the right moment and whether we were harmed and uh, that's true. Would you would you say that's correct? It's, mo it's mostly a case of where nobody says uh, no, it happened on Tuesday or um, he uh, he he failed to sign this or that. Your Honor, I think that's exactly right. I mean, the, the, this is covered by the plain terms of these agreements. Um, the facts are undisputed um, as it relates to those dispositive contract provisions. Well, let's start with how this whole issue arose on this claim that we're making a new argument. Okay. We just heard a brand new argument here all built now around the word initial 
that has not appeared in any brief or any argument. How did this come up? We argued, you're saying, under your interpretation of the agreement, that this goodwill adjustment means nothing. If he doesn't pay it, nothing happens. If it's not resolved by that date, nothing happens. That's what we said. And that contradicts baseline Indiana contract law. You don't treat a, a, a provision as meaningless. So what did they say in response? They just told you that this goodwill adjustment restriction only applies to the initial loan amount. And once we get to the reset loan amount, we just forget about it. We just forget about it. The goodwill adjustment, not paid, not resolved, disappears from the case. What did they tell this court in their briefing? This is on page 43 of their brief. Tricor next asserts that the trial court's reading the MOU would mean that if a goodwill adjustment under the goodwill agreement is owed and not paid by Elzine, it has no impact on the MOU credit line. Citing our brief. Next sentence from them. This is simply not true. So apparently it does have an impact. And what did they say after that? In other words, quoting them, under the plain terms of the MOU, the maximum amount that could be drawn on the MOU loan remains, quote, restricted by, close quote, $2 million until the goodwill adjustment is resolved. That expressly tells you that they're saying, of course, the goodwill adjustment isn't forgotten about. It remains a restriction. We then, responding to that argument on reply, as we are perfectly well permitted to do, pointed out, well, that math doesn't work. If it remains a restriction, you're still $2 million over. If you want to call it a draw, fine. If you want to call it a restriction, fine. That really crystallized this case down to what we have said from the beginning. They're treating the goodwill adjustment as meaningless. And they told you it wasn't. And they told you it wasn't because it remained a restriction. And now they tell you, oh, this is a new argument. Look at the word initial. Now we're making it all 10 on one word in isolation. But I would point out that even that in language, the initial loan facility amount will be restricted by A, the goodwill adjustment matter to be resolved, B, the amount to be withheld, the $1.2 million that they admit they owe. But they concede. They don't claim that the $1.2 million has now disappeared. They concede that $1.2 million still counts. Only now they come back and say, oh, no, the $2 million only counted for this little period. Nobody enters a contract like that. He has been paid $7 million for his goodwill by Tricor with allegiance as the payment mechanism. He owes $2 million back if they don't hit the earnings target. They didn't hit the earnings target. No one's disputing that. Now they're disputing. Now they say what the parties agreed was, even if he doesn't pay it back, we don't care. Until we reset the credit limit, it restricts you by $2 million. But once we reset the credit limit, we don't care anymore. We don't care that you owe us $2 million and you haven't paid it. That is not commercially reasonable. That is not. It is baseline Indiana law that you always look. This is without ambiguity. You always look at the facts, surrounding facts and circumstances, the situation of the parties, what they were trying to accomplish. You always look at that. There is no credible reading of these agreements under which the $2 million goodwill adjustment is just forgotten about. 
doesn't have any impact going forward. And that's a brand new argument all built around the word initial, which you've never heard before. Now, let's just talk about a couple of things. I want to talk briefly about the operational defaults. First of all, it disappears if they've defaulted. The conversion happens. We have a right to accelerate. It all turns on if they've defaulted. If they default and they're $2 million over the credit limit, which is a default, then we get to do all these things and all this other stuff. On operational defaults, Judge Kenworthy is exactly right, but I would also point out the, the notice, the, 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 the statement that we somehow conceded that no operational defaults, that is not correct. El Zine testified that one of the operational defaults, which was transferring employees, it justified that hadn't happened by the date, and he didn't know if it had happened yet. So if we're going to get into operational defaults, which is the side issue that doesn't arise after default, you know, it's not summary judgment worthy. Respectfully, I ask this court, as, Chief, as Judge Shepard, I'm sorry, sorry, I'm sorry to call you Chief Justice again, forgive me. As Judge Shepard said, yeah, the baseline facts, that's all here, which means if you find they're in default because they're too mean over the credit limit, then it should be remanded with directions to enter judgment for us. Thank, Thank you, you very much, Your Honors. I appreciate your kind attention. Thank you. Well, you gave us quite a lot to talk about, so thank you very much for your, your spirited advocacy and your preparation. We appreciate it. All rise.